Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My first guest for the morning joins us on the line. Simon Abrahams is the creative director and CEO of Melbourne Fringe and is joining us to talk about the fact that the first round of artist registrations for the Fringe is now open as of Monday, the 1st of June. Simon, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, very well indeed. I'm I'm buoyed and given hope by the fact that I am seeing organisations either reopening or planning to reopen or making strategies as to how they can work with artists for, to present a festival in a range of different options, depending on what the scenarios are, which is your festival in particular. Yeah, it sure is. We're... Uh... The Melbourne Fringe Festival has announced we're uh, proceeding. We've moved our date to November um, and we've put together, I guess, a range of different circumstances, um, all of which will mean that uh, the festival will happen in some form or another. This is a good thing and I want to come back to that in a moment because... I'm, I'm keen to talk strategy with the kind of members of the sector. Indeed, uh, Virginia Lovett from the MTC will be on a little bit later talking about the MTC's strategic thinking around how to reopen. But one of the core things of the Melbourne Fringe Festival is the artists themselves. And so you are calling for registrations from artists now. And I'm intrigued about this because you're also... Traditionally, Fringe will go, OK, registrations are now open for shows in the hub, and then a little bit later you'll do a more general call for registrations, for example. You, once again, you're mixing up the, the kind of options and the, the registration possibilities. But you're, at the moment, for example, uh, calling what? For artists to register for your digital platform and then a little bit later down the track, there'll be a second call of registrations for people who want to do stuff physically in the real world as we normally would. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, we're opening for registrations for... Uh what we're calling our Pants Off program, um, which is art that happens in your own home. So you don't need to wear pants if you, if you don't want to. Um, so that might be uh, events that happen uh, online. Maybe it's uh, telephone art or someone drops a package up to your house. I don't know. It could be anything. Zoom art. Um, but anything that happens in your own home, uh, we're currently opening registrations for. And then we will be opening on the 1st of July for registrations for events happening out in the real world. Um, but I guess for obvious reasons, we've just held those back for a little bit while we work out exactly how that's going to look. Um, but we've, we've built a, or in the process of building a, a, a digital fringe platform that um, will mean that um, audiences will have a kind of festival experience. We didn't want our festival, um, the online elements of our festival, would just be a bunch of YouTube links, you know? So we kind of wanted to create a, um, a sense of a, of, a, of a digital festival experience, and that's hopefully what our digital platform will do. Now, I like that idea of encouraging artists also to think about how they can deliver work in a way that is not kind of your normal traditional show. And, for example, art over the phone is... In my brain is instantly fizzing, going, ooh, what, what could you create? Could you create some kind of theatrical experience in which an audience of one sits at home and it actually takes part in a production, for example? 
Absolutely. What if this isn't, Richard, what if, this, what if we are not on the radio right now, but in fact this is all an elaborate art project? Who knows? <laughs> it could happen this November. Now, not only are you calling for registrations from artists, uh, but recognising that artists' careers and personal lives have been deeply impacted by the shutdown of the art sector. For example, anybody planning to make money during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, that did not happen. So uh, to support artists, uh, as well as calling for registrations, you're also offering uh, a range of options to support artists, such as not quite a lay-by scheme, but something kind of similar. Yeah, we are. Look, you're exactly right. We just recognise that um, artists have been disproportionately hit by um, the circumstance financially. And um, so we really wanted to see how we could support artists. So we've done lots of things. Um, We have uh, frozen all of our registration fees at last year's rates but then halved them for all these digital events. So all digital events will have half-price registrations. Um, and then for all um, registrations across the board, um, they'll be payable in, in instalments. So there'll just be a, a, a small upfront um, fee to start, uh, and then the rest will just be taken out of artists' um, box office at the end. Um, and for, for those digital events where people might be worried about, you know, people not, not paying for content perhaps or um, not meeting a, a kind of uh, a certain level of box office, we'll take the risk on that. So we'll essentially underwrite um, the risk for, for artists on those digital events. So we wanted to see what we could do to support them. And then we, we've got um, a, a micro-grants program that supports or pays the registration fees for um, artists who face structural disadvantage, so who, who maybe can't afford to pay it. And that comes in at 25%, 50% or 90% off the registration fees. So we've really done, I guess, the, the best we can do to go, we don't want money to be a reason that people don't participate in, in Melbourne Fringe. Now, uh, as well as offering opportunities for artists to participate in a different way and, as we've heard, kind of underwriting those risks and offering micro-grants and so forth, you're also, of course, calling on members of the public to donate and support to Fringe as well, if they can, and again, in a range of ways. So it could just be a, a straight $20 or $50 donation. Or somebody could also donate money for a specific funding program, such as the, the Ralph McLean Micro-Grants program. Yeah, that's right. So, so at the moment, running a campaign, it's called Art is an Essential Service, which is something that the federal government uh, seemed to have missed the message on, um, but hopefully that, that might change. Um, but we believe that art is an essential service, and we're giving um, individuals the chance to, um, to get involved. So uh, you can log on to the website. And you can buy something essential that the festival needs to get to get on. So um, you can buy a bit of an artist, a bit of an artist fee. Um, you can buy uh, the organisation's Adobe um, subscription fee for the year. You can pay our rent for the month. Um, you can buy uh, uh, equipment um, for our venues. Um, you can you can pay for uh, the hire of a projector for the festival. There's things like that that are really tangible um, items that um, people can buy and they start at $25. You can buy five artists a beer um, for $25 or you can, uh, or I think it goes up to $25,000 if anyone so desires and, and there's everything in between. So we really wanted to see what we could do to connect um, people who want to support 
um, artists at this time um, with uh, an opportunity to do that. Um, or, as you say, they can support a micro-grants program um, or uh, there's also a program that, that commissions artists to make work, so matches donors with um, with art as well. So we know that um, people really want to help and that's a message we're getting um, and people are asking us what they could do. So... Uh, we're really, you know, I guess relying on the support of our community to, to get this festival happening. So, I mean, if somebody listening wants to donate the funds that would cover the commission of a work, for example, what's the kind of, what kind of figure are they looking at? Uh, a full commission is, is uh, $5,000, um, but also on the website there's opportunities to contribute to a part of that, which I think starts at $100. Um, so the full whack is five grand, but as I say, you can contribute to that um, at various increments starting at $100. So people can contribute in, you know, in any way they can or, or make a donation. Any donation of $2 or more is tax deductible. So and tax um, they time, can also make a donation at any level. Tax time is coming up. So keep that in mind. Melbournefringe.com.au. If you go there uh, and just click on the Support Us tab, you'll find a range of... Uh, options, don't, giving the, the fringe money, or as Simon said, buying a tax-deductible gift for the festival. And of course, there is also the For Artists tab, which you click on that, will give you details about registering for the 2020 Melbourne Fringe, which this year is happening from the 12th to the 29th of November. It's been pushed back a little bit later in the year. And Simon, as you flagged earlier, kind of you and your team are strategising uh, about a range of options, a way, a range of different models in which the festival could be presented. Can you t tell us just a little bit more about what some of those options might be? Obviously, one of them is business as usual, pretty much. Yeah, one of them is business as usual, and, and uh, I'm always the optimist, so I'm hoping that by November um, that might be on the table, um, but obviously we're not planning necessarily for that, um, but uh, you never know your luck. Um, the next option we're planning for is um, the idea that people will be able to gather but in some kind of socially distant way or physically distant way, hopefully not socially distant, um, and that uh, is probably looking the most likely, I think, at this moment in time. Um, we've then got a model that is a, a digital model um, where artists come together and broadcast work for people to watch at home. Um, and finally, we've kind of done a whole model based on... Um, uh, the idea there might be some kind of second outbreak and everyone's back in isolation and, and what does the festival look like if everyone's in their living rooms and artists even can't gather again and, um, you know, every project needs to be filmed by someone's housemate um, and, and broadcast uh, back at home. So um, we've kind of done full, full costings, plans and modelling for all four different um, versions of the festival to make sure that one way or another we'll be able to get the festival on and... Um, uh, I can assure you, um, putting on one festival is a nightmare. So uh, planning for all four of them has, uh, has been quite the experience. But it's meant that one way or the other, we know that there'll be a, a Melbourne Fringe Festival this year. Whatever form it happens in, I can't wait to see it. Melbourne Fringe 2020, running from the 12th to the 29th of November, in a range of different kind of versions, all kind of... It's almost like we live in a parallel universe in which kind of there will be four different fringes happening simultaneously in, in four different kind of alternative Melbournes. But uh, I'm hoping the one that does happen is uh, a full-fledged fringe with kind of art and parties and people and maybe even a hug or two because, God, I miss hugging people. <laughs> I do too. So, you know, let's hope we're all, uh, we're all hugging our way around, around Trades Hall 
uh, come November. Melbourne Fringe from the 12th to the 29th of November, as you heard, uh, registrations for artists open now for kind of a range of digital or non-physical presentation of work. Uh, jump online, melbournefringe.com.au for details on not only how to register, but then uh, also about the range of kind of artist support and micro-grants programs and more that can assist artists uh, put on their work given the challenging times we've been through. Simon Abrahams, an absolute pleasure to chat to you and uh, I will see you in a foyer, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. I hope so. Thanks, Richard. Triple R. Now, uh, speaking of things that are coming out and coming up, we're looking anxiously around the country and with some kind of eagerness as well to see how different organisations are reopening and what their strategies are. For the performing arts in particular, there are a few more hurdles to overcome. Last week on the show, we spoke with uh, the CEO of Geelong Art Centre. Today, I'm joined on the line by Virginia Lovett, who's the Executive Director and Co-CEO of the Melbourne Theatre Company and also one of the great strategic minds in the arts in Victoria. Virginia, good morning. <laughs> Oh, good morning, Richard. That's very kind of you. I hope I live up to that. Well, I reckon you, you will. I'm thinking, for example, of the work that you did when you were chair of Arena Theatre Company, negotiating with government to get uh, Arena a lifeline by moving them to regional Victoria. You clearly think strategically and, and, kind of, uh, and you also clearly are able to consider a number of different strategies and outcomes simultaneously, which for the MTC I think is a valuable skill given that there must be multiple different scenarios that the company is looking at in terms of when and how it can reopen. Uh, yes, um, uh, we are, absolutely. And I do think that that's one of our key skills in the arts is to, to juggle and think creatively. So I am surrounded by a lot of creative and strategic thinkers, but obviously this has been uh, a crisis that I have never experienced or, or people that I work with have never experienced. So once we were shut overnight, um, it's not going to be... We're not going to be able to return overnight. So we are working with a number of organisations like the LPA, government... And and uh, clearly the medical um, offices and DHS to sort of work out how we can return um, to safe performance levels. Um, but we, we do need to return to non-social distance performances before MTC can open our doors because we can't perform to 10 or 20%, really. It just doesn't make any financial um, sense to us to do that. So we're working very closely with those peak bodies and those government officials um, hopefully that later in the year we get to a point where we can open our doors safely. Now, step us back for a moment. When uh, the Victorian government announced uh, the closure of a range of uh, different kind of bodies, uh, State Library of Victoria, for example, Art Centre Melbourne, that had happened because the federal government had said gatherings of more than 100 people not happening now. Uh, so that must have been a, obviously a a blow to the MTC to have to suspend operations and cancel, at that stage, a handful of productions. How many uh, full productions now has the MTC had to cancel or postpone? We made the decision to cancel six. When, we, when the restrictions came in on that weekend, which was gatherings of over of 500, um, and the Arts Centre closed that weekend where we had Torch the Place um, performing um, and then we had to cancel Emerald City. Then we made the decision um, to really cancel six performance, six productions and then make 
come back hopefully in September with As You Like It. So that was really a box office loss at the moment of nearly $10 million to the company because we're so reliant on box office. Um, we have a government subsidy of about 7%. Um, so it really just turned off our business overnight. Um, we That's, you know, everything from our corporate sponsorship, corporate entertainment, ticket sales, um, People have been very generous. We're probably getting about 20 or 30% of our subscribers donating our tickets back, but it has we've taken a very big hit when we can't actually perform. It also means our bars and our restaurants at our theatre aren't working. Those operators have closed. Um, and also I think it's good that the government are now recognising that we're a key driver of the nighttime economy and we actually do you know, um, stimulate other restaurants, car parks, transport services. So once we close and that's multiplied across the whole city, those industries are actually affected as well. Now, obviously, the, the flow and effect uh, is significant. The economic impact is significant. The, and the, the, the artistic impact is significant as well, not just for the artists who perform on stage when MTC productions are cancelled, but for all those artists who kind of are working behind the scenes, plus the stage hands and the crew and so forth. We're talking a, a, a broad impact. And even though, for example, um, we are seeing some organisations start to reopen interstate uh, Brownsmart Theatre in Darwin are reopening tomorrow, uh, admittedly with smaller, staggered kind of openings before they return to full-fledged productions. Here in Victoria, uh, Linden Gallery is opening soon. Uh, Bendigo Art Gallery is opening soon. They can... Uh, the galleries and the museum sector have an advantage in that they can control the number of people who can enter uh, and kind of uh, their their box office is not kind of so dependent, when, particularly when uh, entry is free to many galleries or at least kind of parts of those galleries. So talk us, uh, tell us about the, the economic impact of kind of trying to reopen uh, at the MTC. As you said, it's not feasible for you to open with an audience of 20% uh, capacity, for example. No, like, you know, our productions cost so much for us to work. We've done overlays of social distancing in our in our theatres and, you know, in the summer you'd be opening to people, you'd be playing to 100 people. So that's just not feasible for us. So for us to actually be a viable industry again or, or a company in terms of the productions we would be putting on, we would have to be, you know, performing to, in terms of the subsidy we get, um, you know, sort of the galleries and museums get a higher government subsidy than us. They could be sitting at probably 30%, 40%, whereas we're sitting at 7%. So we have to, we have to make our money through ticket sales or um, other earned income from the ticket sales. So we do have to sort of sit at capacities. Usually our capacities to make budgets sit at around 78 or 80% of the house. So we really do need to get to a point where um, when we open, we are playing at non-social distance um, in the venue, but we probably will be looking at social distancing in the foyers and in all the other areas, back of house, social distancing of rehearsals and making sure that people feel safe coming back to the theatre. And I think we will be, you know, there will be a, a time, and that's what we're talking to government about, is that there will be a year of recovery or probably longer where people will not feel safe to come back to the theatre and we may see a downturn of attendances of, say, 10 or 15, 20%. Um, 
as it takes time for people to actually feel safe to sit, you know, side by side in a theatre as we come back. But we do have to come back to a point, and I notice New Zealand is opening their theatres next next week in terms of non-social distancing performances, but we can't, we, we will need to do that if we're going to put on the size of productions that we do. Now... In terms of plans for reopening for the MTC, you mentioned uh, a production in September. That's presumably what you're aiming for. But I would imagine that you're also uh, keeping in mind other options, one of which may be that we get a second major spike in infections and social distancing and shutdown goes back into operations. Is that part of your planning? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we're going to be guided by government restrictions um, and we, we're taking all those scenarios into account and we've got trigger dates, you know, nearly every week we're reviewing um, the government restrictions and um, what we're doing moving forward and, and you know, how, what their sunk costs are and how we can, you know, manage the staff. You know, a lot of the staff at the moment, you know, have taken pay cuts. The, a lot of the production staff, um, you know, we're standing down or on roster systems um, and luckily we got JobKeeper. Um, you know, without JobKeeper, you know, it would have been a different um, proposition in terms of keeping the staff on. We got, you know, 95, 95 of our staff are on JobKeeper plus luckily we got nearly 75 of our casuals on JobKeeper because we do have a huge casual pool of people. Um, you know, we have everyone from wig makers, costumiers, scenic artists out the back. We also have the front of house staff and the, the box office staff. Um, so it was great to do that. But, yes, we're watching nearly every week to sort of work out, you know, particularly now restrictions are starting to lift. In the next two weeks, you know, will the government say we go from, you know, 50 to 100? Will it go to 500 in a month or two months? And I think that's where we're having those closer conversations and the LPA and I'm sitting on a national committee at the moment um, that has everyone from commercial producers from Harry Potter to Moulin Rouge to the subsidised market that are putting together a roadmap and I think it's government wanting to hear from the sector like they've heard from the aviation sector, the tourism sector and also um, hospitality um, and sport to say, well, how do you come back? You know, you tell us and we'll work with you. Um, and I think we need that roadmap to sit down with the federal and state government to, to say, this is how we think we can come back. Does it meet with your health and safety requirements? Um, can we do this? And I think if we work hand in glove with them, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be back with the doors open. Now, speaking of government, here in Victoria, the state government have provided uh, over, uh, uh, I think it's what, over $47 million, uh, for the art sector, but that's been focused on the small to medium companies and state-owned entities such as Art Centre Melbourne, the MSO, the State Library and so forth. Uh, that bailout package hasn't supported the MTC. The federal government, similarly, uh, have been very slow in uh, coming to the party to, to date, just $27 million targeting the Art Centre when Life Performance Australia were asking for a much larger, over $150 million or more package to support the sector. If uh, you could say to Paul Fletcher, the Federal Minister for the Arts, uh, right now, can, if you could speak to him right now, what would your message to him be in terms of providing uh, some kind of financial support package for the arts sector and, in particular, companies like the MTC? 
Um, well, we have spoken directly to Paul Fletcher. The companies did. Um, he, he invited us to speak to him last week. And I just want to... I think the MSO is probably in the same boat as us. Um, they are one of the national performing arts, so I'm not sure whether they've had um, much of a thing. Look, I think we, what we um, imparted on to um, the Minister um, was the important role theatre plays in the economic recovery that will be needed. Um, we are a key driver of the nighttime economy, um, you know, we increase trade for bars, restaurants and car parks, transport, etc. as I've said, tourism. And I think we just want the government to recognise how much of a driver and how much we will need to be there if the economy is going to bounce back. I think what we, we did sort of talk to him about was, you know, as I said, we, recovery is going to be slow. We are in crisis um, and we will need a package to underwrite probably um, that sort of confidence loss in the consumer market um, over the next, you know, one or two years. Um, we would love to see something like JobMaker or if it's renamed to JobMaker continue that will also, you know, um, help with um, artists that come onto our books um, and, you know, underwrite any sort of losses moving forward. We've all drawn down on our reserves um, and, you know, we're actually needing really some sort of cash injection, which it was welcome to see that they were looking for some capital um, injection moving forward. But we will need assistance um, over about one or two years if we're going to be come back to full performance capacity and have that consumer confidence. I do think there needs to be also a, a communication to the marketing strategy to ensure that people do feel confident to come back into the entertainment and theatre um, market um, to help them realise it will be safe um, and that we've done everything we can to make it safe for them. And I think, you know, we're in for a long haul, Richard. I think it's going to be, it's going to be a hard, um, hard couple of years for our sector um, and we will need government to realise that. I think it will, hopefully, we have sort of um, opened up the door to, I think, conversation that, you know, funding across the arts was um, needing some sort of review, um, you know, in terms of you get to, to something like a 7% subsidy for the national performing arts theatre companies. I think across the board we're all on average about eight. When you have a, a crisis like this, we fall off the cliff very quickly. So, you know, is it a, you know, a way of having that, opening up that conversation to say, you know, how can we weather these sort of things in the future and make sure that we are sustainable because we're, you know, so reliant. If you turn us off again, if you turn off the business, we'll fall off the cliff very quickly because now we won't have reserves to weather the weather any more crises in the future. Yeah. Now, I know that uh, in the past other state theatre companies uh, or other kind of major theatre companies around the country have needed bailout support from their own state governments. That has not been the case with the MTC. It's kind of uh, been on a very stable financial kind of footing. So uh, hopefully government can recognise the need to support companies across the board uh, and get them back uh, functioning. This final question may be more one for your colleague Brett Shee than you, but uh, Virginia, given uh, I understand that five of the productions uh, that were cancelled this year may well be carried over into next year's program. Do you think that next year's programming generally, not just at the MTC, but perhaps other companies, may have to take a more conservative, safer kind of approach, bigger shows, more focus on crowd pleasers, just to provide some kind of financial security for companies rather than programming more risky work? 
you know, it's interesting. We've been doing some surveying of our subscribers, and and that's not what's come. You know, I think they just they they want exactly what we've been giving them. I don't think they're wanting to. What well, we've been asking that question, and and they've been sort of coming back with we we want still work that challenges us. Of course, we still want some comedy and we still want this. They still want a, a pot puri, I think, of, of a subscription season. I don't think they're coming out saying we must have comedies and we must have light because we've had sort of darkness. I think it's always going to um, reflect the, a certain person who is a subscriber. You know, I can sit in a donor... Um, dinner and one person will say, I want to see more, you know, why don't you program Castellucci? And the other person will say, why don't you perform, you know, more musicals? You know, um, I, I don't think that will be the case. Of course, we will have to, it'll be a recovery year. I think the problem will be um, that, you know, unless we have some assistance, you know, in terms of budgets, we will have to look at, you know, um, tearing back, um where we need to, and, and that will be our programming, because other programs like education and the programs that have made a difference to the company, um, such as, you know, our writing programs, our artistic programs, but particularly probably in education, where it hasn't been underwritten by government subsidy and that we've had to get other donor um, money to do that. Um, we've seen a corporate downturn in sponsorship. We'll see a, probably a downturn in donor philanthropy money come through. And I think, unfortunately, that's where we'll start to see the contraction. But we will see contraction. We're heading into a recession. People's, um, you know, hip pocket will hurt. So we'll, I've been through recessions before in companies. And what you see is usually in the past where subscribers may go, oh, I'm going to do MSO Ballet and MTC. They'll only choose one. Um, and that's when we will have to sort of work out, you know, how we'll actually budget when you see a downturn in ticket sales and subscribers. The next couple of years will be a slow recovery process, as we've heard. Uh, a few weeks ago, I spoke to Evelyn Richardson from Live Performance Australia about their development of a two-year economic recovery plan for the sector. Nonetheless, I look forward to theatres reopening. I look forward to raising a glass in the foyer with you at some stage, Virginia. And uh, thank you very much for your time on the program today. Thanks, Richard. Triple. Ah. Uh. My next guest joins me on the line. Jessica Bridgefoot is the director of Bendigo Art Gallery. Uh, and in exciting news, in over kind of last week and this week, we've been talking to a few organisations about their strategies around reopening. But Bendigo Art Gallery are actually reopening this very weekend. It's very exciting news. Jessica, are you kind of expecting to be flooded by crowds that have been hungry for art? Or do you think there'll be a hesitancy about people going out and kind of mingling in groups in, in the public? Hi, Richard. Look, yes, it's um, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it could go either way. What, what we have done is we've implemented um, time ticketing. So although entry is free, um, we're asking people to book online before they come so we can, you know, keep an eye on those numbers through the building. I think we're limited to about 100 people per hour, according to um, the regulation. So, we, we you know, obviously we, we welcome people. We, we really do want people to come in and enjoy the gallery again and enjoy our shows, but we're, we're mindful of um, keeping everybody safe as well. So 
So it's a little dance. Um, we're doing it. We'll see how it goes. Now, it's interesting that that... Uh, adaption of timed entry, for example, something that I normally associate with, I don't know, the largest tourist, kind of most tourist popular galleries in the world. Uh, it's mm. an interesting strategy to have to uh, kind of adapt. Uh, and also, I guess, just, as you say, just trying to reassure people and show them and tell them that it will be safe. So I presume there'll be kind of hand sanitizer stations at regular interview uh, intervals around the gallery. Um, and uh, Guards, instead of making sure that people aren't going to steal work, will be instead closely monitoring the number of people moving through each different space uh, and exhibition spaces of the gallery itself. That's right. Um, and yes, people, you know, our front of house staff are certainly um, adapting their, their sort of usual daily roles to this new environment. It's going to be an interesting journey for them as well. Um, you know, there was an interesting survey that Creative Victoria put out recently and um, they surveyed sort of indoctrinated, I guess, arts audiences. Um, you know, would you return once restrictions ease? And over 90% of respondents said yes, they would, but they'd want to absolutely make sure um, and be reassured that the venue that they're returning to is safe. So... For us, you know, communication around the safety measures that we're putting in place is a huge part of our reopening and, of course, making the visitors feel safe um, and secure that they can come to the gallery and it is a safe environment. Um, you know, hand sanitizer certainly, that, that will be dotted all around the gallery. We've got some automatic um, kind of dispensers. They look like R2-D2s <laughs> um, at the front doors. Um, we've got stickers and, and messages sort of all throughout the building and, and we do have staff, extra staff in our spaces to kind of monitor things and, um, and help out and, and kind of make sure that people are doing the right thing and being respectful. Now, Jessica, you've been the director of Bendigo Art Gallery since uh, June last year. In your various risk management strategies that you would have discussed with senior staff and the board, was factoring a, gl a global pandemic ever part of those risk management strategies? Um, no, it wasn't. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty, pretty sort of fast and furious, I guess, adaptation. Um, you know, in galleries and museums, we do plan for things like fire, um, theft, flood, but certainly a pandemic wasn't um, within, you know, the, the top 10 of, of sort of disaster management plans. Um, we did pull together a plan um, quite quickly, actually, based on some of the other planning that we've done, and, and we, we made, did a number of things when we first closed down, like one of one of the first things we did was take all of our um, high-value um, and culturally significant artworks off the walls and put them down into our secure storage facility. Um, our pandemic response plan has actually been adapted by ICOM, the International Council of Museums. So we're quite proud of our plan. Um, you can access it through the Public Galleries Association of Victoria website if anybody's actually interested. But, um, yeah, I think... Museums around the world had to really pull their socks up and, and kind of, you know, become very agile and, and move very quickly. It's, it's, you know, certainly been unknown territory. Now, as you say, you had to 
take uh, some of the most valuable artworks down off the walls or off their plinths and put them into secure storage. They've now, I assume, kind of uh, been returned to the walls and the, the dust sheets have been taken off uh, for the gallery's reopening, uh, which is happening uh, this Saturday, the 6th. Uh, talk to us about uh, the, the art that people can see. Is the entire gallery going to be open, for example, or just a few kind of specific exhibitions to begin with? Yes, well, um, about 80% of the gallery will be open. We're actually um, closing two of our historic courts because we're repainting them. Um, so we're giving them a bit of a revamp and we decided to do this during the shutdown. It, it's just that we've reopened perhaps a little bit earlier than we expected. So um, there will be a full re reveal of those rooms um, in a few weeks' time. We've got two you know, quite significant exhibitions on um, at the moment, one um, of which has never been seen by the public, and that's Ross Taylor. It's a solo exhibition by artist Ross Taylor called Field Notes. Um, the second exhibition is in our big pavilion wing, um, and it's it's been sort of a, a long genesis. It reveals the work of Bessie Davidson, who was a post-impressionist artist um, in Australia who moved to Paris and was... You know, over 100 years later, sort of traced by her great-great-niece, artist Sally Smart, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, so this exhibition pairs the work of Sally Smart and her great-great-aunt Bessie Davidson together um, in a sort of really fascinating sort of survey and response. And that exhibition was open for one day um, before we closed. So we've madly rearranged, you know, our program as many other galleries and museums have. We've managed to extend... Um, the loans associated with these exhibitions and uh, we're really looking forward to the public coming in and seeing them. It must have been devastating for the curatorial team to close an exhibition that they'd put so much work into after just one day. So it's fantastic that it's able to reopen and people can actually see it properly. And great too that, as you say, these two artists, uh, kind of their work having the opportunity to kind of to be paired, to be kind of contrasted across time is really intriguing. Mm. But um, let's talk a little bit more for a moment about Ross Taylor Field Notes, Bendigo Art Gallery, given its location. How important is it for the gallery to be supporting uh, artists from central Victoria like Ross? Oh, look, it's really important for us to do this. Um, you know, we, we do actually do it quite a lot and it's something that we... Um, ingrain in our programming when we're curating sort of group exhibitions as well. So we always make sure that we're, you know, looking at who's working in the region, Central Victoria and beyond as well, and, and that we're supporting those artists that choose to, you know, live and work out of the, the two metros um, in Victoria, being Melbourne and Geelong. Um, this show is particularly significant because Ross spent a lot of time immersing himself in Bendigo and the area surrounding, doing things like, <clears throat> excuse me, visiting Robert Jacks, the late Robert Jacks' studio, um, some really significant sites like our, our Sacred Heart Cathedral, um, you know, doing lots of sketches, taking lots of photographs and then collaging um, them all together into this sort of cacophony of, of beautiful, bright, um, spliced imagery that's, that are created by hundreds and hundreds of pencils. So... It's an incredible show and, you know, it's been a, a long gestation and a, and a big labour of love for this artist and we were really happy to be able to support it and we also made a major acquisition from the exhibition into our collection. So for us, um, you know, it's a great 
show as well, I guess, to reopen our doors with. Now, Bendigo Art Gallery has become uh, very well known for uh, its some of its major exhibitions, many of which are exclusive to Australia, uh, often with a sometimes, but not exclusively, but with a focus on fashion and design, for example. How long do you think it will be before we see a return to normal in terms of major international exhibitions coming to Australia? Certainly talking to um, the kind of CEO of Perth Festival yesterday, for example, he said it's it's definitely going to be some time. He couldn't give a precise date because we just don't know when kind of borders will reopen and international travel will will resume. But even if Bendigo were to secure an international exhibition from a country like New Zealand, for example, uh, where we may well be seeing international travel begin much quicker, um, there would still be presumably the challenge of a New Zealand curator having to go into isolation for 14 days before they can then go into the gallery and wander around and so forth. So from your perspective as director, how long do you think it will be before Bendigo Art Gallery can once again host a major international exhibition? Yeah, look, um, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, I know museums and galleries around the world are are now even, you know, rethinking that sort of blockbuster model um, you know, in a pre or sorry, in a post COVID, or we're still sort of in the thick of it, in a COVID environment, um, you know, what's what's that going to look like um, in the future? And is it sustainable to, you know, work in, in this way, um, sort of chasing that next big ticket exhibition that's going to bring in, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people? Um, you know, it's in some ways this pandemic has kind of given the art world a little, or the visual art world, a little bit of a pause that, you know, perhaps it needed as well because it, it gives you a time to recalibrate, um, you know, and, and sort of step off the train, I guess, the fast-moving blockbuster train that a lot of us have been on. Um, now, in answer to your question, we do have an international exhibition booked um, in for March next year, so that's March 2021. Um We've, we've got a contract signed, um, you know, money has exchanged hands, we're, we're fairly locked into this exhibition. So, um, you know, as long as restrictions continue to ease, um, we're, we're still confident that we'll be able to deliver that show. If um, couriers or curators can't travel internationally to Australia with the exhibition, as they often do, they'll accompany the exhibition and our team will work with their team. Um, you know, I, I think... If anything, um, this, the pandemic's demonstrated how agile we can all be and and um, using things like, obviously, um, online platforms to have meetings, um, you know, and perhaps that there'll be a way that we can sort of work curatorially virtually to realise those exhibitions. I mean, a lot of the work that we do in the lead-up to these exhibitions is all online anyway. We're, all, we're exchanging exhibition designs. We're back and forth. We're having online meetings. So... Um, you know, perhaps the biggest change would be the, the lack of um, the, the sort of, you know, international peers, you know, being present um, during during those exhibition times. But, yeah, I don't have a, a, a straightforward answer for you there. Um, it will certainly be interesting. Um, and, you know, we're, we're sort of prepared for anything at this stage, but absolutely we're hoping that, um, yeah, we'll be able to deliver this exhibition in March. 
I look forward to finding out more about that. But uh, <laughs> as we heard, Bendigo Art Gallery is reopening to the public this Saturday at 10am. Uh, ticketed uh, general admission is free, but you will need to book uh, so that the gallery can control uh, the timed entry uh, and the numbers of people in attendance at the gallery. I uh, am taking next week off from my day job and I'm very seriously thinking about a trip up to Bendigo uh, change of scenery and get to go and visit the gallery. It sounds like a good combination to me. If you want to uh, jump online for more information about the gallery, www.bendigoregion.com.au forward slash bendigo hyphen art hyphen gallery or just Google Bendigo Art Gallery located at 42 View Street, Bendigo. Not too far a stroll from this train station uh, if uh, you feel like catching the train up. Otherwise, you can, of course, drive and not far from Melbourne at all. I've been chatting with Jessica Bridgefoot, the director of Bendigo Art Gallery. Jessica, thanks so much for your time. Uh, and chookers for the reopening. I hope uh, the people of Bendigo and surrounds flocked to the gallery in safely controlled numbers. <laughs> so do I. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 